Welcome back to The Greatest Show on Earth. It's episode 007 of Imposter Syndrome, a golf podcast brought to you by Studio 72. Episode 007, this episode is Licensed to Kill. I'm your host, Todd Howe. Joining me as always, the best club fitter in town, the man who makes the most clutch putts under pressure, Mr. Sean Fagan. How are you, my man? Good, Todd. Drying off from another rainy day, another rainy Monday in L.A. I know, I know. We're getting absolutely slaughtered here with precipitation. We have an amazing show lined up today. This episode is dedicated to the Genesis Invitational this past weekend. You went Thursday, I went on Friday. That was my first time. Incredible venue for a golf tournament. I wish I had a hundy on Hideki Matsuyama. On Thursday, he was 6,600 going in. I don't know what he was yesterday. I heard 125 to 1 to close it out on Sunday. Oh my goodness. Not bad if you can get it. I know. Honey on that, I'd be uh, I'd be loving it. I'd be loving life. <laughs> we have a very special guest on the show today. Uh, our first ever guest on the show. Paolo Getty from ESPN is joining us for his Inside the Rope perspective and all things Genesis. But it's time for us to announce the winner of our giveaway in conjunction with our partner and sponsor, Studio 72. We are giving away Studio 72's first ever print of Riviera Country Club. It's framed. It looks amazing. And the winner is... The winner is Alan, a.k.a. Fairway Sand Trails on Instagram. Congratulations, Alan. It's going to look amazing on your wall or wherever you decide you want to hang this beautiful piece. I got to get one of those myself. I think it'd be a great way to commemorate the Genesis that's just come and gone. But also a reminder that you can head on over to studio72.com and use code imposter15 to get 15% off everything on their website. What more could you ask for? Spice up your wall with some Studio 72 and support the pod. Expect anything different? What an amazing finish to the Genesis Invitational this weekend at Riviera. There is nothing better than the PGA Tour in your own backyard. And boy, did it give this weekend. What an exciting finish. Sunday red turned into Sunday yellow. Hideki Matsuyama with an outstanding final round. His first win since the 2022 Sony Open in Hawaii. He has to be in contention for the most likable player on planet Earth. Yep, turned down over $400 million potentially of Saudi money to uh, stay loyal to the PGA Tour. Probably kicking himself a little bit now, but uh, definitely got his first signature win since uh, Augusta you know, at Riviera and to shoot it uh, 62 is a pretty cool way to do it with no bogeys. So that was a pretty solid Sunday. My goodness. He was throwing darts all day. <laughs> you picked JT. He didn't make the cut. Disaster. I picked California to win because of those Poana greens. Neither of us were right. So we'll move on. Maybe we'll pick <laughs> someone this year to win something. Yeah, I'm really struggling with my picks. I don't know why I picked JT. He's much better on Bermuda. You got to pick him for like the Florida swing than the West Coast swing, I think. Uh, so for future reference, I'm going to write that down and, and carry it over to next year. Yeah, I think he's going to win something this year. Uh, it could be a major. You never know. Without any further ado, let's welcome our inaugural guest to the show, ESPN's Paolo Ugetti. 
welcome to the show. How are you doing, my friend? Good, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. I've been a listener since the first episode, so honored to be the first guest here. Yeah, it's uh, it's awesome to have you on the show. And look, thankfully, the rain that started hammering down today stayed away yesterday at the Genesis. Um, how are you after spending a week at Riviera? I'm um, ready to not get in my car and drive to the west side for quite a long time. Um, for reference, I guess for those people listening, I live more near Hollywood. And so every morning, the trek out to Pacific Palisades, you know, it could take anywhere from 28 minutes to an hour and 45 minutes. And so doing that Monday to Sunday, I mean, it's it's a job. I can't complain. But uh, yeah, it was definitely took a toll. Yeah. I don't know how many miles I live away from Riviera, but it's probably around five miles. It took us 55 minutes to get there on Friday. Not good. LA traffic. Gotta love it. <laughs> can, can I rub it in that I walked there in 26 minutes and maybe took a scooter halfway? You know, but Riviera is about one mile from my door. So very convenient for me. You know, when you move to the West Side, you don't want to leave, right? But when you're in Hollywood or the valley like screw come into the palisades it's right in my backyard though i love it did you get tired or something just had to take a scooter well the scooter just you know you knew you were taking some steps so you might as well you know cut it down a little bit maybe scoot over for half a mile you know it's always nice to get the wind blowing in your hair (laughs) (laughs) um paolo uh, I don't, I don't know where to start, but we'll, we'll, what were your highlights from the final day? Yeah, I think I was kind of going into it, hoping for some chaos, right? I think we all were in some sense because we saw Patrick Haley and Xander Chauffle at the top of the leaderboard and, you know, not to discredit them at all, but you weren't exactly, you know, ramping up to get to the golf course and excited to watch them try to hold on to these leads, right? I mean, in some ways I was kind of hoping that two of them would play well and then you would get a little bit of a duel between Xander and, and Cantley. That would have been fun. But you were kind of looking at those numbers. Once Cantley bogeyed 17 on Saturday and the lead cut got cut down to two strokes, that's when like, okay, a lot of people are back in it now. And yeah, I was kind of hoping for chaos, kind of, you know, looking forward to that. And I guess in some sense it delivered, but it, I like I was thinking about this earlier, nobody was really following Hideki Matsuyama all day. Nobody was really expecting him to do what he did. And so it kind of happened off too quickly. You almost couldn't fully enjoy it. So kind of scrambling around that, that was kind of fun. And then at the same time, I think I enjoyed, I sat on 10 for a little bit, just kind of watching to see how guys would, you know, attack that ball on Sunday. I mean, obviously you can kind of sit there all week and have a great time because of how cool that hole is and how you see the pros attack it. So it was fun watching. I, I watched Willis Torres and Luke List come through, and Luke hit a way right, which don't do that. <laughs> and then basically we're scrambling for par, and I think he bogeyed that hole. And then Sal Torres, you know, hit it into the bunk- bunker on the left, but he had an awesome shot to have a look at birdie. And, you know, he got out with a par, and that ended up costing him in the end because he lost by three strokes, I think. So, yeah, I think just kind of seeing how cool – that tournament is to have here in LA and how much people turn up for it. It's such a great spectating course, you know, where you go sit by six and watch all those shots come into that crazy green. 
or 18, the amphitheater is just really cool. Like this is my second year covering the event. And so every both Sundays, just kind of watching the scene on 18, no matter who is the winner, it's always such a fun, um, fun scene and a fun representation. I think of golf in LA. Yeah. And I guess just for a little bit of context, what's your journalistic journey into golf? I mean, you were covering the NBA for the ringer before moving to ESPN to cover college football. How did you move then move into covering golf? Yeah, I'll give you the quick story, I guess. Yeah, so once I got hired by ESPN to cover college football, um, somebody, you know, I think this was four or five months into being in the new job. Somebody was like, hey, we need somebody to go cover the Latin American Amateur Championship in the Dominican Republic. And you speak Spanish. Uh, are you into golf at all? And that was kind of where the Tyler had really ramped up playing more golf because I, I didn't grow up playing, so I picked it up during the pandemic like so many people did and was kind of starting to get obsessed with it. And so I was like, yeah, I'll go cover a golf tournament. Why not? And it was honestly an awesome experience. And I think I did okay because then they asked me to start writing more golf stuff. And, you know, next thing I know, I was going to Boston for – Brookline for the U.S. Open and to Pine Needles for the Women's Open. And this past year, I went to the Masters, the U.S. Open here in L.A., obviously, and then um, the Open at, um, at Royal Liverpool. So, yeah, it's been kind of crazy how quickly it's become like a side beat for me, but I love it. I mean, it's so much fun to do. It's such a different beat than covering college football in so many ways, and so it's been a nice balance to have that um, as well. And as I've started to play more, like it's become kind of really fun to just be around the game more. So yeah, that's kind of my, I guess, quick journey into how I ended up in this little, little cool gig. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I, and I, and I bet it's taken you to places you didn't think you'd go either. Yeah, no doubt. I you would have told me I would have gone to Hoyt Lake, uh, you know, three years ago, I would have been like, how am I getting there? And what am I there for? You know? Yeah. Um, and so it's been cool. It's been really cool. Liverpool's a fun town, um, but run me through a, a day as a journalist at a tournament like the Genesis Invitational. I mean, what, what is it involved? Um, maybe break it down pre-tournament uh, days and then tournament days. Yeah, it's a pretty long week when you kind of look at, you know, the Monday to Sunday aspect of it all. Um, it's It really depends, like, from my, from my specific role, I'm not... I mean, to write every day per, per se, but if something comes up, I have to be ready to write, right? And so on Monday, players are coming in. If you're working on a bigger story, you kind of go hang around the range, and see who you can talk to, see who you can grab. Tuesday comes, there's actual interviews, right? So players are talking on the podium, and, you know, if they say something newsworthy, that turns into a story, right? And obviously, this week, it was kind of interesting because Tiger had his release of his Sunday Red apparel so that was a new story in itself so i went to that event then wednesday he spoke which became obvious at any time he speaks it's a new story so it's really interesting comparing covering an event when tiger's there and covering an event when tiger's not there when tiger's there it's like everything kind of still revolves around him and thus the news has to revolve around him too right in some some way so yeah, when he's talking, that's kind of the focus. So that's kind of the lead up, right? And, you know, you other guys talked on Wednesday, um, Adam Scott, Max Soma. And, you know, you kind of, same thing, you roam around, you look at how players are playing the course, you could follow the practice rounds, ask guys whether they're planning to attack a certain hole. Like, 
this is more, I think, common for majors when guys are feeling out the course. Um, so you're just kind of observing, a lot of observing, a little bit riding here and there. And then once the tournament begins, there's obviously kind of news of who's leading the day, but then you're also seeing who's got an interesting story, who's saying something interesting, who's having a unique crown. Obviously, this week, one of the kind of side storylines was Scotty Shuffler's putting, which we'll get to. But um, yeah, so I think you just kind of gauge to see what's standing out, what's important, and you know what you can kind of hone on. And you know, for the majors, I think you I write a lot more just because everybody's kind of got the, their eyes on the tournament, and so there's more, I guess, desire for stories on whatever the news that they are. And so, yeah, but even for a tournament like this, it's um, it's a big deal. So you always end up doing something, especially like I said, of tigers around. So. Yeah, and then Sunday you just kind of see where the where the tournament goes, right? And who wins, and the winner comes in, and there's your press conference, and you write about it, and there you go. You kind of on the next one. You know, I assume there's probably more player contact leading up to the tournament than there is during the tournament. Definitely. I mean, a lot of people, not a lot, but some people will come in on a Monday and leave on a Friday, for example. You know, they won't stay to see through the tournament. Obviously, I live here, so it's like there's no reason for me not to be there on um, Saturday, Sunday. Well, I know a lot of people will come in and do a lot of their work in the lead-up to the tournament and then leave once the tournament kind of really gets going. Because it is, it is a little bit tougher getting guys and talking to players once they're in, you know, tournament mode or, you know, they're, they're, they're playing. So some guys will, will do it for sure, and if they had a good round especially, but... Yeah, it's definitely the tone changes once you get to Thursday, for sure. Are you at the press conference immediately after the end of the tournament with Hideki? It depends because, for example, like this week, I'm working on a Will's Alatora story. So I kind of hung around him a little bit more. I didn't have to worry about Hideki because, you know, the AP Associated Press will kind of handle that and that will get posted on our site. Not to get into too many of the behind the scenes about that, but so, but... They, he has to go on so many different interviews and things that by the time I was done with my thing, he was pulling up to the press conference. And so it all kind of works out. But yeah, they bring him into the big room with the trophy, and in this case with his translator, and they do the interview there. And so, yeah, that's kind of how, how it goes usually. You mentioned it's kind of a side beat. You know, college football is kind of your main uh endeavor most of the time with ESPN like when you go into a golf tournament you have access you have your network that's ever growing you have your connections that grow do you go in with like you know a a directive from ESPN to focus on one thing in particular or do you have some creative freedom to figure out you know what you want to actually learn and and draw out for a story perspective yeah it's a good question I think it's a balance right I think for me because I'm not the main person on the beat and I'm kind of coming in from the outside there isn't like a expectation. I would say like last year starting to do more golf stuff, it kind of started becoming an expectation. And I think this year I'm also kind of making an expectation for myself to kind of do more in the golf space because I want to, you know, create, you know, more of an audience and just more content in, in, in golf. But yeah, I think it really, a lot of it is really up to me in some ways because I can be like, I'm on the ground, right? And I can tell my editor or whomever, like, oh, I'm noticing this, or I talked to this guy said this, like, let me go and maybe write about this, right? And they're almost relying on you to be the eyes and the ears while you're down there, right? That's kind of the whole point of being there. Uh, but yeah, like I said, with Tiger, like, it just changes, right? It's like, you have to, anything he says, 
we're gonna we're gonna write about it. Anything he does, we're gonna write about it. I mean, we had a what I spent all pretty much all of Thursday doing was basically following Tiger and sending in from my phone updates. Maybe not hole by hole, but kind of periodically about like Tiger did this or like he looked this way or you know he started with a birdie, you know, whatever, right? And so there's some of that too, right? Where I ha- that's like more of like a job aspect of it, whereas the Will's Al Tour story is more of like me being like, hey, I want to write about this guy. So you kind of feel it out. In the, with the majors, it's a little more strict, I would say, just because there's bigger stories and there's obviously more attention, but they're pretty good about giving me some freedom too, which is fun. How did Tiger order his In-N-Out burger? I think everyone wants to know. He didn't even like think twice about it. Like he just walked off the green on 88 basically made a beeline for the for the in-and-out track and just grabbed it and just was like like it was so i think that's the thing i noticed the most was just like he was so decisive about it and like so matter of fact about like oh yeah when are you did an out burger when like he probably hasn't had an in-and-out burger in so long in fact i think i overheard him saying haven't had an in-and-out for a while and so he just grabbed i think it, what was a double double and then he's like he started picking out the pickles and the, the in-and-out lady who gave him the burger was like you don't like pickles? He's like, no, I'm not a pickle guy or, or something like that. I don't remember the exact exchange. You know, then he just sat in the cart and then ate his double-double. Well, like literally 40 people watched him and 20 people took pictures, including me. And so it was just like, what a world world. What a world we live in. This is great inside information. Chris Cuomo was sitting with him too. It's interesting. They're talking again. Who knows? I don't want to read too much into it. And just going back to Will, Willie Z, um, I assume you t- you speak to him on a daily basis when you're talking about the story. I mean, he had the hole in one on Friday, on 14, um, you know, and obviously highly emotional yesterday after disclosing, that, you know, he a family member um, had recently passed away. Like, um, you you talking to him on a daily basis at the Genesis? So it's interesting. This is very. Ins- I feel like this is more inside baseball in terms of journalism, but it's. It's kind of a weird song and dance sometimes with guys where the PG Tour will be is pretty good about like you know if a guy did something notable, he had a notable round, they'll bring him into the podium and we can gather around and ask him questions, right? Sometimes they they won't bring him in, but you can go and find them and usually usually you can ask them like, hey, can we talk? And maybe they'll say no, maybe they'll say yes. I think you know earlier in the week I asked the player if he wanted to talk and he was like. Oh, I, I can't right now or something. Okay, cool. But it, it's like a weird sort of song and dance where you're kind of feeling it out. Like, it's so funny when you're on the range too during the lead up. You kind of have to like time it right. Like, I wanted to talk to Matt Kuchar for something. And so it's like, I have to wait until he kind of like is transitioning from hitting his iron to like hitting his driver because then there's like a little window of like sneaking in there and being like, hey, can I talk to you for a little bit? Right. And so, yeah, it's like this sort of interesting situation and with somebody like will he played well enough to where he was at the podium for three days straight basically so he was giving quotes and you kind of grab those and uh, and you know sometimes you see you know like their coaches around them so you can go up to them and see if they're willing to talk to if you're kind of gathering for a story so yeah i think obviously that's been kind of the challenge for me too right it's like figuring out what kind of stories i want to do and like how i want to go about doing them right because nobody's actually being like do this unless they're you know, it's a big, big story or something more kind of uh, timely. 
So it's been fun kind of figuring that out for sure. Yeah. And just because you're part of ESPN doesn't mean they're going to tell you anything, right? You have to have the research done. You have to ask the right questions. You have to invoke opinion and and get something out of them. They're not just going to give you something, right? Because at the end of the day, ESPN offers you access and the platform, but it's up to you to develop those relationships interpersonally manage the politics, ask the questions that need to be asked for journalistic integrity without necessarily, you know, pricking someone too hard. So there's obviously that balance. And the more deep you go, the more respect you gain. The players, I'm sure, talk to each other a little bit about, hey, you should talk to this guy or maybe you shouldn't talk to this guy, right? So you have to kind of play that being a new person on the scene. Like you're still trying to navigate all this. It must be kind of fun, but kind of scary, kind of challenging. It's got to be really cool. Yeah, it's all of the above for sure. Like it's, that's been probably the most interesting part is figuring out where my place is because, you know, you show up to a golf tournament and you have meeting members next to you who have been covering golf for literally their entire lives, right? And so you're like, oh, this guy clearly has a relationship with everybody who's everybody, anybody who's anybody, right? And so you kind of like, okay, where do I fit into the picture, right? How can I start creating those relationships? Um, you know, but, and it's hard when I'm going to four, five, six, maybe six events a year, right? That's another thing too, is, you know, just kind of finding that balance of like, I'm not really, a lot of the times I'm not here to write day of stuff or have any everyday stuff. I'm here like, cause I want to work on something bigger that'll, you know, take a little more time. And so in, in that sense, sometimes the ESPN thing does help, right? Cause at least uh, you're not just some random person say asking for for questions but you definitely have to these guys like these guys don't care where you are writing or where you're coming from right they just like they want to talk they want to talk and if you ask good questions and interesting questions and you know they'll talk to you right and so it's uh it's definitely a process for sure that i'm still very much in the middle of yeah who's who's been the most approachable of all the players so far Sahib is pretty approachable. Like I've talked to him a couple of times and he's just so nice that like, it, it, even if, I think even if he wanted to turn you down, he, he wouldn't like be able to, um, he, or he would feel really bad about there. you like, oh, I got to go chip, you know, like, um, so he's been really, he's been really approachable. And obviously, I mean, he's younger too. So he kind of has that, like, you know, he's just happy to be here kind of mentality, even though he's obviously extremely good at golf. And so, um, yeah, I think that's somebody who has been real approachable. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else. I mean, you know, I haven't personally like done this in some ways, but like I've seen other player, other media members go up to like Ricky Fowler, for example, and he'll, he'll talk right. Even if it's off the record, like he'll just talk to them for a little bit. And so I think there's a lot of guys who, who like to talk. Like, I mean, that's the rivalry too. I think guys like to talk, even if they don't love the media, right. Or whatever, like they love to talk. So, um, you know, there's plenty of approachable guys, plenty of guys who, and it's approachable, but um, at some point, if you're going to play a lawyer, you're going to have to talk, right? Like, that's kind of the, the, the nature of it, too. Yeah. I'll just, I'll just recap a couple of things from the Genesis. Patrick Cantlay, he was the 54-hole leader going into the final round. Two shots clear of Xander Shoffle, six shots ahead of Hideki Matsuyama, yeah. who started the day at eight under. Xander Schauffele and Patrick Cantlay with pretty much an unremarkable front nine. 
we touched on that a little bit. And they were just plodding along with other players, slowly edging their way up the leaderboard. It was kind of like the silent assassins in a way. Um, most notably on the front nine, Luke List, uh, going on an absolute tear with a five under front nine and putting himself in contention and really the uh, the first one to have put pressure on the final pair and by the start of the back nine uh, the leaderboard was jammed and it was pretty much anyone's ball game it seemed to flip relatively quickly Matsuyama obviously in there Zalatoris Adam Hadwin was also there kind of closing in on on the leaders but Hideki shoots three under on the front starting with three consecutive birdies and then he birdies 10 11 and 12 and he's right in it the final pair really wasn't doing much really apart from xander's chip in eagle uh out of the bunker on 11 but after uh, starting the back and front nine with three consecutive birdies matsuyama nearly holes out for eagle on 15 what a shot what a i mean stuffed it to six inches then he nearly aces 16 puts that one to about six inches uh, tapping birdies on both of those holes. Then he birdies 17, and he finishes with a 9-under 62. He goes 32 on the front, 30 on the back for a 62. The lowest round scored in the history of the tournament at Riviera. Um, and what a day for a, for a golfer like Hideki Matsuyama to have a pure flow state day. And it, what was so crazy about it is, you know, of course, I'm on an airplane, a United airplane with no ability to stream, no TV. So I have to refresh. I paid $10 for Wi-Fi to refresh ESPN's leaderboard app. At one point, I think there was five players tied at 14 under par, right? And all of a sudden, I get a couple text messages Xander, because he holds out that shot on 11, right? And then I get Hideki just almost hold it twice. And I'm looking and all of a sudden, you know, he's up seven uh, to 17 under par and he's going to win going away. But when I went back and watched the coverage, the first time I saw Hideki, he basically hit a ball a little left of the green on 11, had it covered in mud and hit it to like a foot, right? This like 50 yard pitch shot across the green. The next hole 12, he rolls in. It must have been at least a 30-foot birdie putt that was breaking five, six feet. And then all of a sudden, the dude is just like running away with the tournament. Up to that point, everyone's completely jammed up. And, you know, Jim Nance and Shy Sellers are licking their chops going, oh, my God, we're going to get a five-way playoff. This is exactly what we need for our ratings. And, you know, like when you're going back and watching Xander and Patrick and taking time, and, I mean, they're a hole and a half behind and with Hideki running away with it, the coverage just died as far as I'm concerned. And this has been an ongoing issue Todd and I have talked about all season, but man, it's just like they can't seem to catch a break. The drama doesn't feel like it's been there so far. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like you said earlier, I think it was just out of nowhere how Hideki, like it must have caught the producers off guard too, you know, because he was just having such a, I think when you said that I was, Completely accurate. Like he was complete flow state. Obviously, we know Hideki's one of the best ball strikers out there, but the putting has really been the issue, right? And I feel like once he saw a few roll in, like it just kind of his confidence went way up. And that's that shot on fifteen to me. I mean, fifteen was playing so hard. Week it was. It, I think it's easily. I mean, I don't know if the stats back this up, but it's easily the hardest goal out there. Like it was 
playing so difficult and n- nobody was putting it close. Nobody was having an easy time making par there. And for him to just kind of stuff it and then make birdie there and then do it again on 16. The tournament's over there. Like, you know, like, was outdoors would have had to do something insane or look less to, for, for it to even be a, a contest, right? Just the fact that this guy started the round six shots behind and somehow became a runaway winner, like, that's that's crazy, right? And uh, it, it was so out of nowhere. Like, I can't get over that. Like, <laughs> how quickly it, it happened and how quickly it was like, okay, tournament's over, basically. And how quickly Tiger shut down, right? I mean, all of a sudden, he was just WD'd. You know, and it's it was such a buzzkill. We're going to get to Tiger in a couple of seconds, but you know, when I mentioned uh, Jack in '86, you didn't you didn't even see Jack Nicholas on the broadcast until the back nine, and I think it was the same thing for Hideki as well. It literally was five players at fourteen under, and then all of a sudden, Hideki's running away with the tournament, and you know, within thirty minutes, game over, um, and no one really gave a hoot about Cantley or Xander Schofley. They just seemed to uh, be plodding along three holes behind everyone else. I had a little bit of a giggle on Friday because I was literally standing on the green on seven. And uh, one of the groups goes through and then I'm standing there for 20 to 25 minutes. And lo and behold... Along comes Patrick Cantlay's group, and no prizes for guessing why they're one and a half, nearly two holes behind. And anyway, after another 20 minutes of watching him think about putting and eventually putt, I see Tiger in the distance. I see them teeing off seven. All of a sudden, there's a huge kerfuffle halfway down the fairway, and you know we look over, and Tiger's on a cart. And I'm just like, well, you, you know, you know what that means. He's out. You know, it felt like all the air just got sucked out of the tournament there for the whole day, the whole rest of the day. It felt that way on the ground too, right? It felt like, oh, you know, not that you expected necessarily Tiger to be, you know, fighting for, for the trophy on Sunday necessarily or, or anything like that, but just to finally have him back and then just kind of not even be able to finish 36 holes. It was, it was, it, that, that, I think those were the feelings kind of going through everything. I, like, I was up near the clubhouse when I heard Tiger's WD, and I'm like, whoa, like, immediately you think, you know, is it the ankle? Is it the back? It's some kind of injury, right? And so, because that's, those were the initial reactions, I was like, I got to go see, like, where, you know, got to see where he is. And I think I missed him on the cart when he was coming up with the cart. And we, because then I saw the cart with his, with his bag and his security guard and his agent coming up as well. And so, yeah, I think it's obviously it's kind of a, I don't know, I want to say a positive, but it's a good thing that it wasn't an ankle, right? Or back. It was, it was an illness. Um, but that whole scene and kind of what happened, you know, the next few hours was so surreal because you're right. The tournament felt like, well, nothing matters now. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's going on with Tiger? And then, you know, I walk outside of the Riviera Clubhouse and I see a, two fire trucks and an ambulance. I'm like, what is this doing here? Like, I'm like, this can't possibly be for Tiger, right? And so, but, you know, it's just all these thoughts running through your heads, the media running around trying to see, like, where's Tiger? Where's Tiger? You know, suddenly we're waiting for an hour for him to come out of a door. Then an ambulance pulls up to another door and it's like, he might come out there, but then he doesn't come out. And it was just this whole ordeal of, like, craziness and suddenly 
the ambulance closes doors. There's nobody in the ambulance. The ambulance leaves, and 30 minutes later, Tiger walks out of the locker room and heads out. Right, and so you know the story obviously is there were no IVs on property, so they had to call an ambulance for them to administer an IV, and that's what he needed because of his illness, which I think he later he said it was the flu. So. Yeah, I mean, glad that everything's okay, but it was just kind of a surreal, like, never a dull moment, right, with the Tiger beat. So it was it was crazy. It was truly, like, uh, I'll definitely remember that day for a while. He never came back on property, right? I mean, the tournament host, you'd think, no. would have came back. He's done interviews in the past, or at least has commented, right? We had Rory jump on on Sunday instead of Tiger, but that should have been what Tiger was doing. I mean, did we hear anything from him other than congrats Hideki via Instagram? No. So he, he sent a tweet confirming that he had the flu rider and that he was, you know, resting or whatever. And usually he would give out the trophy, right? Like, um, that's kind of his world too. And he just did he wasn't back on property. I think still recovering or, or whatnot. And, um, it was funny because Hideki and the post game, um, interview through his translator was like, I'm kind of sad that I didn't get a picture with Tiger. <laughs> so, yeah, he didn't have that little moment. But, yeah, I mean, it was just, just crazy, crazy, crazy. There was a part of me when I was standing on seven and Tiger had just driven past in the cart that thought, <laughs> you know what, I bet he's just he's pulled something because he was standing on that tee box for too long or waiting for Cantlay. Uh, I'm not the world's biggest Patrick Cantlay fan. You can probably tell. I, I couldn't believe that his group was two holes behind and they're not getting pulled up for pace of play. I mean, it's, I just found that absolutely absurd. What are your thoughts on, on him and pace of play? Because he's, it's, this is not the first time, right? No, it's definitely become kind of its thing. And I think he's become aware of it too. I think I saw a few people saying, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I saw a few people saying, as you can tell that he's trying to, play faster like that there is an improvement in in how quickly he's playing but they talked about it on the broadcast which i thought was a good thing like they you know to, for them to bring it up he's probably not the worst defender but it's it's definitely a thing with it but i think he he's just an interesting guy i don't really know how else to put it. he's a very smart guy like when you hear him talk in press conferences you can tell like this guy thinks about things very thoroughly and you know and he's He's a he's a level headed smart guy, but I think he's always I, I think it's just the way he's been used to playing. I don't know. I mean, Xander is kind of the same way. For me, honestly, like Xander's a great player, but the way he just re grips the club over and over like stresses me out watching him. You know, and it's just a it's just a lot. Like I can't, I just can't. Dude, but you've got to watch Tiger Woods and Sergio at Beth Page. Like if if you want to go absolutely nuts. Watch that tournament. I don't think Tiger looked at Sergio once during the entire final round of that tournament. But you got to watch it. It's a, it's a spectacle. It drove me insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, I'll, I'll watch it. Yeah, I, it's just I don't know. There's something about it that really kind of stresses me out. The regrouping and everything. And you know, I think to their credit, they picked it back up on on Sunday. They picked up the pace, and maybe that's because they were weren't playing so well. Um, but yeah, it's. Um, a bit of a slog. I mean, I, I will say, you guys are watching it on TV. When you're out there and you're watching these guys go through their whole process, which I totally, I mean, there is millions of dollars in the line. I totally get why they have their process and they do their things. But sometimes it's just like, 
just hit the shot, <laughs> you know, yeah. just hit it. And at Riviera, I mean, if you played that slow, okay, as a member, you're getting a letter, right? You're getting a letter at any legitimate golf course around the country. You're going to get a letter from the membership committee, the director of golf. And you say, hey, you played in four hours and 50 minutes. The pace of play is four hours. If you should be done in three hours, 50 minutes. And if you're past 410, 415, we're going to start threatening some actual like sanctions against you and your membership. This is a rule of law at the upper echelon golf clubs around the country. We want to talk about Scotty Scheffler. I mean, look, I was watching him on Friday. I saw him miss two putts from about 12 feet or inside 12 feet. Look, the longest putt he made all day on Friday was four feet, four inches. He's third in strokes gained total. He's ninth in strokes gained off the tee. He's third in strokes gained approach. He's number one in GIR percentage, 80%. He's 128th in strokes gained putting, half a stroke worse than the field average. This week at the Genesis, he was minus 4.358 in strokes gained putting. Zalatoris was plus 2.279. Hideki was plus 4.298 in strokes gained putting. I mean, that's eight and a half strokes in putting alone between Matsuyama and Scotty Scheffler. Obviously, there's a confidence issue with Scheffler, which is a completely different thing. But, I mean, what is he going to do at this point? Do you know what? Do you know what the most damning part of all that is? And those are some pretty damning stats. I would tell you that nobody was grinding more on their putting this week at the Riviera putting greens than Scotty Scheffler. So he's like, not only is there something clearly wrong, not only does he know something's wrong, he's putting in the time to fix it and he is not fixing it. Like it's, it's crazy. It's, it's honestly one of the, I mean, we're talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. I feel like it's not a not as big of a storyline as it probably should be in some ways, because this is, you know, somebody who has the boss striking cap- capabilities of you know peak Tiger, and squandering away big tournament wins because of this one thing that he can't figure out, right? And so, obviously, you know, I'm, you guys touched on it um, in a previous episode about potentially going to a different putter. I think, I think at this point, if he's tried every, I mean, he's got a putting coach. He's practicing. He's doing drills. He's like, he's so in it that I don't know if he needs to stop putting or if he needs to completely switch out putters. Like, there's got to be some kind of change going into the next tournament and going, especially going into the majors. You can't just show up at, you know, major season and have this issue still kind of lingering over your head. And it clearly is in his head. I mean, he threw a ball into the woods at Riviera because of the moment's putt. He kept grabbing his putt. I watched him right before his tea time on Saturday, I think, just grinding over like five footers and he would miss one low and miss the other high and then just kind of like stare at the hole and <laughs> this guy, just somebody please help him, you know? And I don't know if the answer is a, a mallet, a broomstick, or maybe a therapy, well, I don't know. Like it just needs to be, there needs to be some change. I think it's his starting lines. I really do. I think he just doesn't understand where the straight line is relative to his setup 
Rory McIlroy went on the broadcast, right, with uh, Jim Nance, and he was saying, you know, I moved from a blade because he had putted with a blade growing up, and to you know, he had the, um, he was putting with the Spider uh, Tour, the Spider, uh, the Spider X Tour for a while, and then he ended up moving on, and I think now he's is he playing the Phantom Five Five. Uh, I think he might have right. that at one point. Yeah, I'm not sure if he did this I think, week. I think he, he tried a Scotty early this year or late last year, and now he's back to the Spider, I'm pretty okay. sure. Yeah, so the spider, the spider, you know, again, I've touched on it in the past, talking about from an equipment perspective, the more weight you put behind the blade, the higher the moment of inertia, the less resistance to twisting, and the less ball speed penalty you get if you miss the center, okay? But just because, you know, you're playing a mallet doesn't necessarily mean it's just going to go on the right start line, right? So it really is there to mask an imperfect strike, which I don't think Scotty has to worry about. I think he probably pures the shit out of his putter just like he does with every other club. And I think it just his the what he's looking at is not in line with where he's trying to put the ball. And as soon as that happens, you start seeing ghosts. Yeah, and, and I also think that like it gets to a point where you just do not trust what you're doing when you're standing over the ball. You don't trust the read. You don't trust your own execution. If you're aiming left edge, whether you're executing at left edge and you're just second guessing in your head, I think that's where he is. I wouldn't call it yips, no. um, but no. I would certainly call um, it. It's it's getting to a point yeah. where he needs to like put the brakes on and and like completely reassess, take the pressure off himself and reassess what he's doing with the whole thing because, uh, look, yeah. If Scotty Scheffler was to ask me how he can fix this. Okay. And he's not asking me, but in the theoretical scenario where he asked me what I think he can do to fix it, I think he gets a yardstick, puts a yardstick down four feet away from the hole and puts down the yardstick just to recalibrate his understanding of what that straight line actually is. Cause I, I'm convinced at this point, he does not think a straight line is actually zeroed. And as soon as he starts seeing that immediate feedback, whether he's pushing it or pulling it, he's going to start understanding what's going wrong. And well, I watched him too, Paulo. I, I sat on the at the clubhouse and watched Scotty. It was actually funny. It was Scotty. It was uh, Morikawa. It was Max Homa, and then Xander was on the separate putting green over by the Ben Hogan statue. So I got to watch all these guys, and I was like, "Wow, there's a lot of lot of world ranking points sitting right here." And Scotty was didn't look like he was using a chalk line. He certainly wasn't using a yardstick, and he was hitting five foot putts, and he'd put it down and read it and hit them. And I did see most of them go in uh, when I was watching him. But I mean, literally, if you want to figure out if you're delivering the club face open or closed, throw a yardstick down and try and keep the ball rolling on the yardstick. And I think that would fix it. So in the hypothetical situation where he says, hey, Sean, tell me what should I do to fix my putting? I would recommend a yardstick. But he hasn't asked me, and I would never give unsolicited advice to the world's number one player. I'll tell you what, though. I'm going to take that advice because I feel like I've been having that issue with my putting lately. I just don't, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm starting it. I'm, I don't know what's right or left anymore, I feel like, even though and I actually have a new putter, so. Well, look, yeah. I mean, we could talk about Scotty all day. I think there's a little bit of the little man inside of his head as well saying, I need to make this putt. If I don't make this putt, I don't make this birdie. 
I just think he might be thinking about score a little bit too much, you know, when he's standing over those those putts. I think uh, everyone would want to see the world number one just have a tear-it-apart tournament where he just does not falter on the putting surface and he'll blow everyone out of the water by at least half a dozen shots. Yeah, I think what we're seeing too, and not to get, we don't have to get into a whole discussion about this, but I feel like we're seeing the downside of parody in PGA Tour started this year. Like some of them have been good stories, right? Like Dunlop and Taylor, but it's the the place where golf is right now. It's kind of clamoring for maybe not just one, but a couple of superstars who can you know show that you know they can go off on a tear and win a couple of tournaments or even. I mean, I know it's hard for, for, for people to win multiple tournaments back-to-back now or majors, but just some kind of dominance. I mean, Scotty kind of had it. Obviously, John Rahm had it before he went to live. And so I feel like there's there's kind of this void right now for a dominant golfer. And if Scotty had his putty figure it out, it would probably be him. If he doesn't have that fellow, like, you know, warrior John Rahm standing next to him competing against him like I wonder if that takes away from some of Scotty's process and it doesn't make him it, it might create a little bit of a difference in belief and in, in, in the process you know I mean I'm just speculating but it's an interesting thought for sure I mean I think to, to a certain extent all all of what this does is further heightened and inject the majors with a lot more excitement and sort of anticipation, right? Because it's, it is the place where we'll see Scotty and Rom paired up, you know, and playing. So um, I'm excited for that. But, I, you know, I do wish we had it on a more regular basis. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I felt like Riviera was the first true test of golf for these guys this year. Sean and I talk a lot about uh, golf becoming too easy or being too easy for these guys right now for a number of different reasons. What is it about Riv in your eyes um, that makes it more of a test uh, than courses that have hosted the preceding tournaments this year? I mean, I think it's just a good golf course compared to the to the other courses, right? To a certain extent, Ooh. there's just so like there's just so many shots that it forced the course forces you to hit, especially as a pro, right? You, we talked about 15 how hard it was playing like that tee shot has to be exact because otherwise you're in the rough or you're in the bunker and the rough was a little longer this year too which which i think played into some of the some of the maybe not difficult because you still you still see Hideki at 17 under right but that's pretty high score but he did it with absolute great ball striking and if you saw the leaderboard most of the guys up there were great ball strikers and so i think it just brings out the best players and that, to me, shows that it's a good golf course. It's a good test for those guys, as opposed to, you know, your previous courses where a lot of them are driver wedge, right? And so it becomes, a you know, as Rob once said, a cut putting contest. So, yeah, I think that that's, from an overarching standpoint, I think that's what makes uh, Rip great as a, you know, as a venue for pro golf. Rivers hosting the 2031 US Open. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of spots in that course where they could push a tee box back. But, you know, I think short of USGAifying the setup, two inch, three inch thick Kaikuya in the middle of summer, 
around half of those greens and <clears throat> with those tight fairways, I don't think you'll be seeing anyone shooting 17 under at a US Open in 2031. I honestly couldn't see that happening. Yeah, I agree. It would be so tough. Yeah. I, I mean, part of me kind of hopes they don't trigger it up so much. I, but I'm also the mindset that I don't really care what the final score looks like. I didn't care at LECC last year. That's not, I, I, I don't like, I get it. I, maybe I'm missed because I'm younger and I didn't have the days where the, the, you know, the winner of the US Open was over par or whatever, you know, and I, I think there's definitely some fun in that. And I think if they were to do that at Shinnecock or whatever, sure. But I feel like this course is, they can't really make the greens faster because of the slope like that, you know, and that's a whole nother subject. But yeah, I mean, they'll probably make number one a par four, even though like, I love that it's a par five. I think it's a great part of the George Thomas design. And so that's, you know, I don't know. I don't know what they'll do, but I hope they don't trick it up too much because I think it, regardless of what they do to the course, I think the tournament and the competition will be really good just because the course has so many great shots like Sean said. Well, you're going to get a, a preview too with the Olympics. So <laughs> well, that'll be a really good like soft launch for the US Open, right? And I don't know. I'm not sure who the Olympic committee or committee golf guru is. I mean, I'm sure it's not going to be Mike Wan, but they're going to get a ton of information for what they need to do because they're going to still want to trick that place out and and not have someone shoot 25 under par. I would imagine. Hmm. I see. I don't know. I think that they're going to make it a little bit easier. Um, it's the Olympics. I still think the Olympic golf in the Olympics is a little bit exhibition. Um, I think they're just going to want low scores. Hot take, hot take. <laughs> well, it's funny, The uh, on Sunday they introduced Xander at the first tee as Olympic gold medal winner, Xander Schauffler. And I was like, all right, he did win an Olympic. Like, it's, it's almost like an afterthought, you know? It's like the one thing he has gone. But, yeah. uh, I mean, again, not to open up a whole can of worms, but I feel like this course would do well with like a, mild restoration of sorts you know i don't think there would be any major changes but i would be interested to see like what would happen if somebody tried to take rim back to its kind of full original design because i know there's a lot of things out there that have changed over the years so uh yeah it could be interesting to see yeah the bunkering could look a little bit more sexy i think but you know apart from that wow look it's it's just one of the most pure golf courses I've ever seen. It's the first time you were on property, right, Todd? First time I've been on the property. All right, what's your score, one to ten? What would you rate it? Give me, don't give me a rookie score. Yeah, give me like a proper score on your experience. It's a ten. It's a ten. I cannot, I cannot fault Riviera to be honest. Even the first hole being that length uh, for the pros, it doesn't matter if it's an easy par five for them i mean Cantlay and shuffley in the last group yesterday they made par end of story like you still gotta you still gotta hit the shots um, i think i think last year i went into the u.s open thinking lecc is the best course in la i i i think i would probably lean toward it. like i i don't know what it is about it i think it's Maybe for a pro tournament, right? I think that's the other thing too. Is like it sets up so well for watching groups come in. For you know, there's so many different cool spots on the course where you can watch shots. Whereas obviously that's 
more of a difficulty at LACC. And they're two different golf courses completely. But I don't know. I I think I was just I'm just been more charmed by uh by by Riv after two years of covering this tournament. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if Sean's allowed to give an opinion on that matter. But uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting debate for sure. One A and one B. That yeah. is the answer that I'm bound yeah. by blood to give. <laughs> no, I think that's right. I think that's right. Keeping it in LA, I want to quickly talk about a local boy, Anthony Kim. Have you heard anything more about his return to golf? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it seems like it's happening. It seems like the word is that there's been some ramping up in um, in Palm Springs or somewhere in the desert. Um, almost sounds like a movie, right? Like he's kind of just getting prepped in the desert and <laughs> getting for his big comeback. Uh, no idea when it actually will come to fruition, but it sounds like, by all accounts, like it, it will happen. I mean, it sounds like it'll be live, right? I don't know that for sure, but uh, I wonder. I do wonder if that will make people more people tune tune to live because, as you've seen, nothing gets people to tune to their tournaments because their ratings are, you know, that pickleball beating them on the TV ratings. And so, I do wonder if actually uh, there will be an uptick because of him if he joins. There'll be an uptick for an hour or two. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think everyone's going to be fine just looking up Anthony Kim's first round uh, yeah. on YouTube. I think that's what's going to happen. You know, look, he's 38, I think, right? He's my age. He's going to be rusty. His swing looks amazing. I would say I know where he is right now, um, but because I know what course he's practicing out of. But other than that, like... Uh, I've heard he hits the ball amazing. He's in great shape for golf and he still has the it factor, but I don't know, man. I hope he comes yeah. back and he's he's good. I hope he does because it'd be additive to golf and hopefully it's one more step in the right direction of bringing everyone together. Jordan getting DQ'd for signing an incorrect scorecard. The debate is, is this an archaic, stupid rule, especially with shot link and all that? Let me tell you something, okay? Like, if Jordan Spieth can sign for an incorrect scorecard and get DQ'd in a tournament that he was going to win at least four or $500,000 on, I actually think that's um, that's really good. And the reason why I feel like this rule should continue to be implemented is... These guys at the top, sure, they have all the advantages of the shot link person and the live score and all that, but this is a rule that goes down to the fundamental honor system that is golf, and I know he might have made a mistake. I heard he might have been sick. He had to run to the bathroom, came back, was in a rush. If Jordan Spieth can get DQ'd on this, so can Kamayo Johnson, right? So can everyone else at the lowest levels of the game, and this is a fundamental law in the game of golf get your score correct it's your responsibility and i actually don't dislike it and i like that he took the the punch in the face like a man and just said yep i signed an incorrect scorecard sorry very much see you later and uh i would i will defend this as being a good rule for golf um and all the hate mail can be sent to imposter golf pod on instagram Hey, well, they'll have to they'll have to send it for two because I'm I'm 100 behind you, dude. Oh, great. Okay, I just completely sure. agree. Just make it. Yeah, sure. yeah. Paula, what do you think, man? I I actually disagree. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no. It's a, no. I think it's. I think honestly, it's more 
there's like a few loud voices instead because it's people who like don't really like follow golf on a regular basis and are like what do you mean you can't like just keep your score electronically and like why is this a thing and obviously there's multiple reasons for that and now do i think there's a debate to be had about whether the incorrect scorecards should mean an automatic disqualification sure you know maybe it's a stroke penalty or something but again the rule is the rule and i think you're right sean like it's part of the you know like you said, if Jordan Speed can can be disqualified for that, like then you know that's just part of the game. It's part of the role, and um, it was cool to see him just like take ownership of it and just be like, "Yeah, messed up," which was uh, which was good. So yeah, no, I I agree with you guys. I think I think this is part of golf, and I like that golf is kind of have has its little unique quirks that maybe other sports don't. It must have hurt, but I bet he was able to catch a ride with uh, my pick JT on their private jet. So uh, couldn't have been that bad. There you go. Yeah, a few beers on the plane on the way home early on a Friday night. <laughs> Not too bad. Not too bad. Guys, it's time to go. Um, thanks for listening to the show. Thank you to my co-host, Sean Fagan. Thanks again to ESPN's Paolo Ugetti. You are a legend, dude. Thanks, Thanks for bro. being our, our inaugural guest. Smash that like button. Subscribe to the show wherever you're watching or listening. Leave a rating or a review wherever you can. Help spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Uh, I put a lot of work into making my voice sound this radio friendly. So, uh, you know, help us out here. You can follow us on Instagram at Imposter Golf Pod. You can follow us on YouTube at Imposter Golf Pod. You can follow me on Instagram at Encino Golf Lab. You can follow Sean on Instagram at SKF Golf. Paolo, what's your handle? Paolo Ugetti on Twitter and Paolo Period Ugetti on Instagram. Pretty simple. We're going to post it in the in the section below. See, right here below. Uh, if you have any questions at all regarding fitting and building um, and or building, send us a DM on Instagram at Imposter Golf Pod. But until next time, folks, don't eat dodgy food before you play. Uh, we lost the goat at Rev and we don't want to lose you too. Uh, and if you're going to drink and drive, keep up the pace of play. Imposter Golf Pod.